Idag pratar vi om kryptovalutor. Another big story coming out of China's central bank's crackdown on crypto. This is the seventh time China has banned crypto. You can only actually ban something once. It's like the cops showing up at a party and telling everyone to go home. <laughs> so like the music's too loud. Yeah, the music's too loud. Or in this case, it's like you're not allowed to party anymore. So we're talking about crypto, and we're talking about a fairly unprecedented event that really haven't been covered that much here in the West. So to our listeners who might not have been following this in detail, like, what's the story? So earlier this year, China banned crypto mining. Um, and this was very significant because a majority of the world's crypto mining was done in China. When has China ever surrendered leadership position in any industry, especially when it's had such a dominating position. I mean, this is this is what China wants. And they just surrendered that position. What's happening is a lot of these mining entrepreneurs are migrating elsewhere, literally. <laughs> the irony is now the leader in mining hash rates is the US, China's best friend. Almost capricious. China is basically handing the United States a gift on a silver platter. It actually proves how resilient Bitcoin is right now. Then they're going to be left behind. This is a story of opportunity cost. It's like <laughs> my machines aren't on and I'm in absolute pain every second because I know how much money I'm losing. The last year has cryptovalutor nått new recordhöjder and en Bitcoin has been worth the most over 600 000 kronor. Kina har länge dominerat en av nyckelkomponenterna inom kryptovalutor, nämligen mining. Men trots dominansen valde man tidigare i år att stänga ner mining helt och hållet. I det här avsnittet frågar vi oss hur det här påverkar kryptovalutornas framtid och vilka globala effekter det kan få. Och du kan vara lugn, vi ska även reda ut hur kryptomining faktiskt fungerar. Jag heter Jakob Lovén. Jag heter Tom Chong. And I'm Nick Yen. Och det här är den digitala draken, en del av Svenska Dagbladet. För att förstå det här ämnet har vi tagit med oss vår nya kollega Nick Young. Och flera av er känner säkert igen honom från tidigare avsnitt. Men det kanske inte är mer än rätt än att han får presentera sig själv ordentligt. Hej Nick, so who are you? Hi, uh, but how do you want me to introduce myself? Uh, it's up to you. Okay, I'll, I'll try. Maybe you could cut it up. I'm Nick. I've lived in China for the better part of the last 18 years now. Damn, the time flies. Uh, doing a whole variety of different things. Nick är vad man kan kalla för serieentreprenör. Including starting my own companies. I also started a non-profit uh, that brought people from all around the world to North Korea and raised money to bring North Korean students out of the country on scholarships because they didn't have access to internet and good education. And then I've also... Vi skulle kunna prata om det där typ i en timme. Men det som är relevant för det här avsnittet är att han har jobbat i techbranschen i över tio år. I was previously the head of AI innovation for one of China's largest e-commerce retailers where we basically spend time thinking about how to use our AI technology to do things that have influence on real people and not just uh, things that a lot of tech people get super excited about. And I've also spent time uh, Ja, och Nick fortsätter en stund till, men ni fattar. Han har ganska lång CV. So, if I were to summarize it, I've been doing a lot of random things for the last 17 years. I'm completely unreliable. A few of our listeners might have noticed that you have an American accent. So I was born in New York City, and for those who've been in New York, 21st and 3rd, Gramercy Park. And then I went to China first in 2004 during a gap year after high school. I was just thinking I'm going to take some time off before going to university. But um, it ended up being the most important decision I made in my life, because during that year, 
I, I think I connected with my identity as an Asian American. And then after coming to China, like my entire trajectory changed. So I changed my major to East Asian studies with a focus on Chinese history and literature. It was kind of like a, a decision that I made when I was young and I was just like, hey, China's cool. I want to check it out. But it was in hindsight the most important decision I made in my life. Nick har tjatat hål i örona på mig och Tom de senaste månaderna när det kommer till just krypto. Och jag kan väl erkänna att jag har lyssnat så lite halvaktivt. Så vi börjar med att ta reda på varför är han så fascinerad av just det här. What led you down this, this rabbit hole? Like, why is this so fascinating? Well, I mean, I think crypto is fascinating for a number of reasons. I think really what it is, is it's about the value of money in society. I started following crypto, I think it was during the first bubble in 2017. This was something that a lot of Chinese were talking about simply because of, um, you know, in China, there's capital controls. So I became very curious to learn about what is this, what seemed like a subculture that is so new and potentially disrupting even to big governments like China. Ever since I was a kid growing up, money is something that governments issued. Hmm. And so, you know, when you're in the U.S., you buy things using dollars. When you're in China, you use RMB. If you're in Sweden use kroner and these forms of money are centralized within a certain jurisdiction or a country now crypto is something that is decentralized mm. it is something that has no borders it can be used to purchase things anywhere around the world by anybody and to me that is a fundamental disruption in how people use money and transact for things in the world det Nick nämner att vi kommer kunna använda kryptovalutor i vår vardag kanske låter osannolikt. Men faktum är att vi kanske inte är fullt så långt borta från det som man kanske tror. Framförallt inte om man bor i El Salvador. You know, citizens can now from today technically use Bitcoin to buy virtually anything. So we're talking a cup of coffee, a haircut. They can also pay their taxes in Bitcoin. The first country in the world to officially put Bitcoin on its balance sheet and hold it in reserves. Tidigare i år blev El Salvador det första landet i världen att implementera bitcoin som en officiell valuta. Och innan det här hände hade de i över 20 år gjort samma sak fast mot amerikanska dollarn för att skydda landet mot skenande inflation. The value of bitcoin in this case is not dependent on the cryptocurrency becoming a medium for exchange. In other words, like bitcoin can go up in value long before your local coffee shop will accept Bitcoin as a payment. Mm. That may come a lot faster than you think. It's just that you live in Sweden and Kroner is pretty solid. Yeah. But if you live in El Salvador, if the local currency is constantly appreciating because of runaway inflation, Bitcoin is a much more stable option. So currently the, the, the viable alternative is dollars. So if you have hyperinflation, you peg your currency to the dollar. But um, I would say that a lot more of these developing economies are now considering Bitcoin as an alternative. Nick har pratat med flertal experter, men i det här avsnittet ska vi höra från en, nämligen Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I've been active in the crypto community for about 10 years. So you've been speaking to a lot of people, but you've mainly been speaking to this one guy called Alex. So what can you tell me about him? Yeah, so one of my contacts when I used to work in tech is a good friend named Alex. And after the 2017 bubble, I was a little bit burned by some of my own crypto investments. And I started looking elsewhere. But Alex doubled down on crypto and now you know he's an investor and sits on the board of um, several crypto companies and then the reason why I want to talk to him here is that he's spent a lot of time in China and a lot of people and he always says this it's a lot of people that look at China um, and claim that they're experts in China have never been or rarely go to China or don't speak Chinese and don't interact 
regularly with Chinese locals. And so he has a lot of understanding of the implications that changes and fluctuations in the crypto market have for global macroeconomics in general. And I think that's an interesting perspective for our listeners. Vi ska återvända till Alex, men först ska vi prata om elefanten i rummet. Det har varit extremt mycket kontroverser kring krypto. Allt ifrån pyramidspel till skenande värderingar. Och jag känner personligen att jag har hamnat på skeptiker sidan. When I hear crypto, I literally you know, think about the fluctuating value, the 25-year-olds who are now billionaires. Because I think I have this preconceived idea about this super sketchy thing that is crypto. I think to a certain extent, that's the fault of the media, though, because I think the media loves a good story. So they'll always talk about the overnight rags to riches story, mm. guy who made a billion dollars, then lost his digital wallet. A British man accidentally threw away a hard drive. There's a specific file on that hard drive uh, called a wallet file, which the Bitcoin is stored in. Today, the crypto inside that hard drive is worth more than $350 million. <laughs> you know... <laughs> He's got billions in this wallet in a garbage dump somewhere. I mean, I think the media likes those stories. But you know what they're saying? And they're saying that 2021 is the year that crypto went mainstream. At least here in China, it is something that not just the everyday people, but the government is tracking very closely. Not to get too technical, but you see the emergence of what's called NFTs or non-fungible tokens now used to facilitate the transaction of artwork and collectibles. And so it's entering the mainstream. Mm. A lot of the major bulge bracket investment banks are now hiring teams of young investment analysts and traders to look at crypto. Mm. And to me, that's that's just a sign that even if these banks haven't accepted crypto as, as a disruptive force that I think a lot of people in the community already do, mm. they are not ruling it out. And so they're hedging their bets. Okej, okay. låt oss komma in lite på hur krypto faktiskt fungerar i praktiken och varför det är lite häftigt. Vi ska bryta ner det i tre delar. Den första är kryptovalutan i sig, den andra är blockchain och den tredje är mining. En kryptovaluta är i princip som vilken valuta som helst. Den representerar alltså ett specifikt värde som du kan köpa varor eller tjänster för. Så tänk att du går in i en butik för att köpa något. Det normala är att du betalar med ett kort kopplat till din bank- vad som händer då är att butiken stämmer av med banken om du har pengar eller inte och banken kollar i sin tur saldot på ditt konto och verifierar köpet. Vad krypto innebär är något som gör att du i princip kan ta bort både banken och kreditkortsföretaget ur ekvationen. Och det är här blockchain kommer in. Blockchain is a technology that has enormous potential. I could nerd out over that, but it's just a very secure way of storing information. There's different types of blockchain, but blockchains that are decentralized are not stored in any central place, so This idea that you can trust data that's stored all across the world, not centralized within one arbiter or one centralized source of power, is something that's very new. Så istället för att bankerna äger och kontrollerar ditt konto och din finansiella information så lagras allt det här i den nya valutans krypterade blockchain. Och tack vare att blockkedjan inte är lagrad centralt någonstans och istället är utspridd över miljontals datorer så både skyddas och verifieras din finansiella data på ett mycket mer säkert sätt. Ingen kan alltså ändra i ditt register utan ditt godkännande. The difference between a decentralized and a centralized network. The biggest difference being if it's centralized then there's the risk that the central authority is not the most virtuous actor or could be hacked. And you know, and we've seen instances of that. Men en decentraliserad infrastruktur som ingen äger behöver ändå underhållas. Miljarder beräkningar ska göras dagligen och för det krävs datorkraft och det är här mining kommer in. 
Ju mer blockkedjan och valutan växer desto mer processorkraft behövs när volymerna ökar. Så inbyggt i varje valuta finns ett belöningssystem för den som bidrar till att underhålla och utveckla blockkedjan. Och det här är det som kallas mining. I think a lot of people think about miners they think about bitcoin miners because once again bitcoin is the most valuable coin in circulation and that is a special property of the bitcoin blockchain and it's actually a very simplistic blockchain because not to get too nerdy but blockchains store data but the only data that a bitcoin blockchain stores is just a list of transactions i sent jacob 100 bitcoin i wish I did. Uh, probably like <laughs> I wish you did too. half a bitcoin and you sent that half a bitcoin to somebody else and it's just a record of the transaction of bitcoin that's the only thing that's stored on the bitcoin blockchain. But that blockchain is created and updated by all of these miners that are using their computing power to create different blocks in the blockchain. Now, as they use this computing power, they are rewarded. Hmm. How are they rewarded? They receive bitcoin. Och summan av belöningen förändras över tid. Let's say that both you and I are mining on the blockchain and whoever is the fastest gets the reward. But like how much am I rewarded and like does every task come with a specific amount? Well, it's actually a very specific number. Mm. So this gets related to what the halvening is. So the halvening is first of all it sounds awesome. It sounds like, you know, a movie. It's Game of Thronesy. Yeah, the halvening. So what is it? The halvening, in short, is that every four years or so, it's not baked into the algorithm. It's every four years or so, there's a halving event. And what that means is the reward for mining Bitcoin transactions is cut in half. Hmm. So actually, in the early days, if you can believe it, if you successfully mined Bitcoin, you would receive 50 Bitcoins. <laughs> so every four years, that halves. And so it halved to 25, halved to 12.5 recently. And then I believe in 2020 or May at some point, it halved again to 6.25. And usually around those kind of happening events, there have been like intense boom and bust cycles that have ended with higher prices than prior to the event. Mm. So, you know, it's something that people that invest in Bitcoin and miners themselves, they follow very closely. Like, when is that happening? But the reason is that like, even though you're getting fewer Bitcoins for your hash rate or your power, the Bitcoin are worth more. And so that... Yeah. Continues to incentivize miners to mine. Ett annat ord som brukar associeras med det här är mining machines, som egentligen är datorer specialbyggda för att göra just de här beräkningarna. Men som vi alla vet kräver datorer el, och det är här det gäller att ha en balans mellan hur billig el du kan köpa, hur mycket datorkraft du kan få och hur mycket krypto du kan mina. Well, there'll be more and more computing power required to mine the same amount of bitcoin. Mm. I think the media plays this up to be some kind of apocalyptic event because now the total energy required to power the Bitcoin network, I think it just exceeded the entire energy consumption of Argentina. This was several months ago, so I'm sure it's even more than that. Bitcoin is a bigger emitter than American Airlines and is fast catching up with the carbon footprint of the entire federal US government. How much power is required to mine Bitcoin? There's a huge motivation to burn an awful lot of electricity, and that's the problem. I think these numbers are hard to comprehend. It just feels big and it feels wasteful because you don't know what Bitcoin is. And and to be honest, it doesn't really do anything. Mm. At least at this point, it's not really a primary medium of transaction. And so I think with most things, the reality is more nuanced. Mm. So for example, in in China, there's the argument that um, a lot of the Bitcoin mines were located in Western regions of the country where energy is just 
less expensive. Mm, mm. And the reason why it's less expensive is there's a lot more of the energy because it's further away from the heavily populated areas on the eastern coastal regions of China. Det finns inga officiella siffror för hur mycket som var förnybar energi i Kina. Men det vi vet är att miningföretagen främst satt upp sin verksamhet på två ställen. På vintern i Xinjiang-provinsen där det främst funnits billig kolkraft. Och på sommaren transporterar man sina miningmaskiner till Sichuan för billig vattenkraft. Och på så sätt har man maximerat lönsamheten. There is this huge debate right around the sustainability aspect of crypto. You know, whether it can be like a force for sustainable energy. So when you talk to the crypto community about this, like what's their response? I think the main thing they're saying is that crypto mining is not a net negative for the clean energy movement. That the conversation mm. is nuanced and that crypto mining can actually support clean energy. The one way is that it can help balance the grid. So if you have supply of clean energy in parts of the country that is not being put to use, crypto mining can help consume that energy because you can basically build a crypto mine wherever there's excess energy. And actually that's advantageous to mining because that energy is less expensive. Another way is can help countries convert from fossil fuel to cleaner sources of energy. Right now you, you may have a fossil fuel plant that's powering cities. You can't just turn it off, uh, put it out of operation. Um, but when you build a new clean energy plant, you need off-takers or you need somebody to consume that new clean energy uh, to justify creating a clean energy power plant. Um, and that somebody can be a crypto miner. So basically creating more profitability in green energy. In other words, it can create a viable return on investment for clean energy. And you can start that pretty quickly. So hur kunde krypto bli så stort i Kina? Det är dags att introducera vår nästa gäst, Alex Isaacs, som Nick har pratat med. Han är en av de mest pålästa personerna i världen när det kommer till just krypto i Kina. Crypto miners got a lot of cheap capital and cheap energy from people who were able to provide that. Alex har valt att vara anonym så hans röst är utbytt. In many cases people who are in local government or associated with local government or very powerful business people. Det var så inte bara entreprenörer utan även lokala politiker som gick in i krypto för att tjäna pengar. Like the stories that we've heard from our miner friends they would just go to some electrical producer and say hey we want to buy power from you and they throw up a warehouse right there next to the grid no regulations boom they're up and running you can't do that elsewhere right och återigen ser vi ett exempel i Kina där tillväxten kommer från en perfekt storm av hungriga entreprenörer och en lagstiftning som är en enda stor gråzon crypto started to sound more and more like you know the, the wild west there's this lawless arena where you can go seek your fortune i mean it's profitable It's a good business. Chinese people are good at doing business. The, that's the easy answer. But I mean, I think there was inexpensive sources of energy, and the regulation at that point in time wasn't as clear. And uh, you know, a lot of the machines are produced in China. Yeah. That kind of infrastructure is is necessary for crypto. Och enligt både Nick och Alex råder det absolut inga tvivel om att kryptomining i Kina har varit extremt lönsamt med marginaler på upp till 70 procent. If you were to create a 500 megawatt mine and mine it for five years, we could expect to create between 12 and 15 billion in revenue. The thing is, the capex for that's really significant, so it's not like you can snap your fingers. There's a, you know, substantial entry cost. Och den typiska miningentreprenören var absolut inte den typiska techprofilen vi brukar se i Kina. To be a really good miner, you just have to be good at cutting deals and being good at basic spreadsheet math. 
and then, you know, good at operations and hardware. Yeah, the irony is that the miners, they're not these techie geeks. These are not fancy laboratories. These are people who saw a business opportunity. And up until earlier this year, it was a very profitable opportunity. To me, it reminds me a little bit of in America, like 1849 gold rush, when a lot of um, people hard on their luck made out west for California to try to mine for gold. Men efter flera år av en lönsam guldrush så tar en dag tvärstopp. Look, what's your read on this crackdown in China? Is it is it really that bad? A government-backed news outlet showed social media footage of miners turning off machines. I juni 2021 gick Kina in och satt ett förbud på kryptomining, vilket många såg som spiken i kistan för just krypto i Kina. Och någon månad innan hade en av de mest seniora regeringstjänstemännen varnat att centrala regeringen planerade att slå ner på just kryptomining. Och miningföretagen reagerade såklart omedelbart. Footage from crypto mining farms in China started popping up on Douyin. Machines that mine cryptocurrencies were being dismantled and packed up. This is fantastic news. This means that Bitcoin is working, not that it's failing. It's making nations shiver in their boots. Den kommande månaden backade den centrala hashrate eller datorkraften kopplad till mining med över 45% världen över och priserna på mining machines halverades. Det här satte igång det som har kallats för Kinas stora kryptoutvandring. Miningföretagen började desperat leta efter nya platser att sätta upp sin verksamhet på utanför Kina. Och det här har fått stora effekter i framförallt USA, Ryssland och Kazakstan. I den sistnämnda till en milda grad att flera medier senare larmade om att Kazakstans elnät kanske inte skulle klara av den kommande vintern. The country's limited energy infrastructure. Electricity is already like, has limit. Not all cash rate migrating from China will come to Kazakhstan. Och i framförallt USA har Kinas nya lagar blivit big business. We are immediately earning more bitcoins every day. Miners around the world are taking advantage of the exodus of Chinese miners to expand their own businesses. The sudden drop just means everyone who continues mining now has a bigger piece of the pie. Our share of the bitcoin revenue has effectively doubled. China is basically handing the United States a gift on a silver platter. Okej, så vi är tillbaka där avsnittet började. Kina har precis tänkt ner mining och det här har öppnat upp jättemöjligheter för andra länder. Så då återstår såklart frågan, varför stängde man ner det? Here's what I don't understand. So many people in China made a lot of money from mining crypto. And you know, China had the potential to continue to lead this for maybe another 10 years while creating value in more remote areas where business isn't as common as, let's say, in Shanghai or Beijing. And then they they just shut it down. Why is that? That's my question. Why? It's a good question. It's a complicated question because uh, the Chinese government hasn't really explicitly come out and stated why. Mm. But, um, you know, there's several reasons that people talk about. Mm. So... The one reason that gets talked about a lot is that China has ambitious climate goals. And so, you know, they're shifting to clean energy and, you know, a lot of these crypto mining operations are powered by dirty energy like coal. Mm. That's just not going to work. I don't find that quite as plausible because I think a lot of these crypto mining operations were also powered by clean energy. Those have also been halted. Mm. And China has added to this day, more coal power. Mm. So if they're adding coal power elsewhere, why wouldn't they add it to support a very profitable industry that they dominate? Mm. And actually, I talked to Alex about it, and he mentioned that 
powering these mining operations is very conducive to using clean energy because you can place your mining operation very close to a clean energy source in sparsely populated regions of the country. Compared to like the tire factory, right, or like a typical heavy industry factory, it's pretty clean. So, no, if I'm a state planner, I love this kind of modular, you know, highly scalable heavy industry. China loves heavy industry. They love anything where they can efficiently put in state capital and get a high return. I think Alex kind of thinks this is part of a PR campaign around clean energy. But really, there's other reasons at work. Of course it's just talk. Come on. Like, if I'm Xi Jinping, and I don't care about any of the other factors related to crypto, I I love crypto. That just gives me a chance to do a lot of state-sponsored green energy. And I have, like, a very convenient offtake that I could put anywhere. That means I can go build a solar farm, I could go build a hydro dam in bumfuck, and I don't have to worry about making the power useful. A more plausible explanation for this, and Alex and I, we talked about this as well, which is that the Chinese government is preparing to launch their digital currency, hmm. the digital RMB, digital yuan. So if you have this other digital currency, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that continue to gain prominence, adoption, value, obviously, it could pose a threat. Somebody somewhere just felt like there was too much potential competition or mudding of the water or potential for maybe, you know, loss of face. The digital yuan is attacked or something happens. And, you know, people can be like, oh, look, Bitcoin's been around since 2011 or 2008 or whatever it is, and it's never been hacked, (laughs) you know? Um, Don't you look silly, Mr. Chinese government. To put it simply, some people may be like, you know what, I don't want the digital RMB. I (laughs) prefer to hold Bitcoin. Mm. And there's implications there because China places very strict capital controls on RMB flows. So the idea that you could take your RMB and purchase hardware, use that hardware to mine Bitcoin. And then once you have your Bitcoin, you can migrate that out to anywhere in the world. Mm. It's kind of like a a loophole to get money out of the country. And I think that's part of the risk as well. Mm. But I think the larger thing at play is that as long as cryptocurrency encourages speculative behavior and is an essentially decentralized proposition for money, then China can't control it. Hmm. Some statistics have put it up as only 2% of the global population has crypto Hmm. at this point. And so, you know, it's better now than later to try to control it or to Hmm. stamp it out completely, which is what China has done. Vad som också intresserade mig var att nedstängningen var allt annat än dramatisk. So China doesn't want this for a bunch of reasons. And I would imagine that the way they execute on this ban is to, you know, start kicking down some doors. But that does not really happen. I think there was one case in Citron where some local authorities were kind of trigger happy in the sense of wanting to kick down doors. But otherwise, like, when you talk to people about this, it's been just very civilized. So why the soft shutdown? Why not go guns blazing? I think basically the Chinese government realized, hey, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money and invested a lot of time and resources into their mining business. We can't just shut it down. So they've given them a time to wind down their business. Och trots att det gått över ett halvår sedan förbudet är det fortfarande några aktörer som har satt igång sina maskiner igen i väntan på flytt. I know a few people who are still mining to this day, although they have wound down their operations, they are already shipping machines overseas looking for 
land in Texas. Such an American narrative, looking for land in Texas. <laughs> But yes, they're already making preparations to shift their business elsewhere. The global hash rate is back up to almost what it was before the ban. And there's only two explanations for that. One explanation is that a lot more machines have been shipped than people have tracked. The other one is that I think people have basically turned on their machines while they're waiting for the long-term solution. And the government maybe is letting them do that because they see that they're making moves to leave. Det kanske mest intressanta med allt det här är hur Kinas förbud kommer att påverka resten av världen. Okay, so let's talk about the after effects. Like what what happened directly after the ban? Like did we see drops? What happened to the community and and, and you know the currencies? There was a dip when China said they were going to ban mining. And I think part of that dip was caused by miners selling off their their bitcoin. And during that sell off, the value or the price of bitcoin dropped. But it rebounded. You mentioned that you know people are looking for land in Texas to set up their machines. I get this picture in my head, you know, where someone they have a map over the energy grid in Texas and like, hmm, here's a blank spot. But what else? What are the immediate implications of this happening? And mining has to take place elsewhere. And you know, who's benefiting from this? Well, it seems like the U.S. is benefiting from this because the profits from mining I and mean, estimate that it could be around 9 billion dollars that China was sacrificing just just for mining operations alone that now have migrated elsewhere and the largest winner is the US I hear about a lot of these Chinese miners they're eating Texas barbecue now they're <laughs> posting photos of themselves eating Texas barbecue to show to indicate their intentions move to Texas it's the new promised land but I think No, I mean they don't speak English and like you said they're very kind of salt of the earth entrepreneurs. Mm. For them it's a business opportunity. I would say this is a story that's kind of personal to me because I don't think it's just a story of 30 to 40 years. My family immigrated to the US in the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. It's like a long time ago to do business just because there was a lot of opportunity in New York Chinatown. And so they they immigrated there and they did business. They didn't have a lot of money at the time, but there was opportunity. I mean, that's the American narrative. So th- it, this may be a little bit too much of a Hollywood script, but you know, it's kind of like this idea of moving out to these wide open tracts of land in Texas to pursue your dream. You know, it's it's an immigrant narrative. I think that's it, that's interesting. Flera av de experter vi pratat med tror också att en positiv effekt av att mining flyttas från Kina är att hållbarhetsfrågan kommer få större fokus i väst. Renewable energy is a big winner because there's a lot more pressure in the west to make this type of energy clean. And there's more fear that if you don't, you may not be competitive in three to four years. You're seeing investment into future proof, like heading towards carbon offset or even carbon neutral approaches. Someone recently that we know, they started a massive build in Iceland, geothermal. That stuff's expensive. You would have never seen a major Chinese player investing in that before the ban. Nick menar också att de långsiktiga effekterna för Kina kommer vara utebliven innovation. I think the shift in the center of the movement is significant. You know, if I'm thinking about starting a blockchain company mm. or issuing my own coin, and China's not the most welcoming place to do that anymore. Mm. Whereas the US is it's taking a more leadership position. You see companies like Square now a part of Block, rebranded as underneath the umbrella Block. They're making a big play into blockchain, potentially producing 
uh, mining hardware as well. I think Jack Dorsey made that announcement. Facebook for a while has been talking about, sorry, Meta. I can't keep up. Uh, <laughs> they produce a, a digital currency of their own. And so I think that the shift of innovation may move westward or outside of China. Och det här understryker Alex är den stora frågan. The question is, will China be able to reap the benefits of decentralization in technology without kind of rewarding or freeing the market to go and do it in a decentralized way? Is there an innovation discount that could happen in a really important area, right? Not so much crypto, but the decentralization of finance, the injection of trustlessness, the ability to have trustless economic incentive systems that you can overlay on any aspect of human activity. There's more value at play there by far than the value created by crypto mining. Innan vi avslutar dagens avsnitt ska vi besöka det som händer i USA just nu där det är stor fokus på regleringar. In your view is additional guidance defining clear rules of the road for investors and market participants needed at this time. I slutet på 2021 samlades kongressen i USA tillsammans med de största aktörerna inom krypto. Och många tror att det är det här som kommer påverka kryptos framtid mest de kommande åren. The topic is an important one for anyone who cares about American competitiveness. This doesn't seem like a new financial system per se. I would disagree with that. Either a new form of digital property or a new way to record ownership. The next iteration of the internet in which individuals are able not only to read information and write content but also to own a piece of the networks themselves. Nick berättar att mottagandet från kryptorörelsen är So I think it's a mixed response. I think generally speaking, a lot of people welcome sensible regulation. (laughs) And what does sensible mean? It means a clear standard for what they can and cannot do. I think generally there's the spirit of the community that says you shouldn't regulate what I do because crypto exists outside of a centralized governing system. I think that's partly part of the spirit of the movement. But I think especially a lot of the more institutional actors in the crypto space they welcome regulation because it provides clarity to the entire industry and they can operate as a business not just as mm. this subculture. So I think right. there is this tension if crypto wants to go mainstream it has to grow up and become something that the government can regulate. Och den här kampen mellan den traditionella finansindustrin och den nya kryptorörelsen mina Nick är växtverk. Yeah, I mean, there's growing pains with crypto going mainstream. I mean, just Hmm. some examples, you know, the U.S. government unveiled a quote-unquote crypto sprint roadmap for 2022 because the crypto companies, they're driven to innovate and to bring products and services to market that they believe customers want. But now as crypto goes mainstream and there's just so much money pouring into the system, the government feels that they have to step in and monitor or establish guidelines for the space. You also see that the traditional finance space and the crypto space are are merging, especially as a lot of institutional investors are taking on more and more crypto assets. So I'll give you an example. So if you have a bank that begins to diversify its holdings into crypto, and crypto is this kind of gray space that is unregulated, and if there's a shock to the system, let's say Bitcoin crashes, what will that do to the bank? and their financial stability. We saw this in the 2008 crisis where at that time banks were investing in these really risky exotic derivative products that were tied to the real estate market. Well, we know what happened. Those products ended up being overly risky. The banks lost a lot of money on that and that tanked the entire financial system. So I think there's lingering anxiety 
among policymakers to avoid having that scenario happen again. Innan jag avslutar mitt samtal med Nick vill jag pusha honom lite om vad han tror om framtiden för krypto. I know this is a very broad question, but like what do you think the future entails both following the ban but also for crypto as a whole? So the China link is that I think really what's driving this conservative approach to crypto is that China wants to launch its digital yuan mm. without this threat of a challenger. And I think the broader implication is that the dilemma that China confronted this year, I think countries all around the world will have to navigate on their own, including Sweden, including the US, Western nations. Mm. El Salvador has apparently already made their decision about their attitudes towards crypto. And so the idea is that I think that ultimately the value of money is being tested, is being disruptive. Mm. Cash, I think, will inevitably disappear. As cash dies out, it'll be slowly replaced by central bank digital currencies. And slowly, I believe in a future where over the next few hundred years, algorithms will start to replace these aging politicians that make monetary policy. AI will monitor economic factors in real time. And a lot of the policy that dictates money supply, you know, interest rates, these are going to be determined by intelligent algorithms. Mm. So I think what, what you're seeing now is that the entire financial system beginning with money is becoming digitalized and i think this is a very disruptive future i think very few people now can wrap their mind around what a digitized economic system would look like mm. and i think cryptocurrency is just the very beginning of this hmm. there's a lot of talk about the metaverse nowadays and a lot of people claim that cryptocurrency will become like this standard payment within a functioning metaverse like that that will be facebook's or you know meta's next big move do you think that's the case first of all i i think that um depending on how you define it like i think a metaverse can exist uh, or we can create a metaverse around fiat currency but in an online or virtual environment having a payment method is that is secure and traceable and transparent will be an important way to build trust in the transactions that happen in this virtual place because you know you're not talking about just americans in the metaverse And so what what currency are you using to transact for things in this virtual place? Granted, like this depends on how you define the metaverse, but where is the metaverse located? It's kind mm. of located in this virtual ether. If it's virtual, why should you have to use any one currency? Um and how do you build trust into the system where people can make transactions in this virtual world mm. and they feel confident that the governing authority of the metaverse is virtuous? Mm. The pushback of Zuckerberg's dream is like, do you want Zuckerberg to be the overlord of the metaverse? If this is like the future of the internet. You want Meta to be the governing authority? Do, do you trust them? They didn't do a really good job with our data. Mm. And they haven't done a really good job protecting the young people who use Instagram and their psychological well-being. Mm. And I just don't know what the metaverse is going to look like yet. Mm. Mm. But it seems to me that um transparent and traceable system of of money will adapt well to this virtual environment. Alex, däremot, är väldigt försiktig med att försöka spå framtiden. It's very difficult to make broad-based statements, actually. Like, 
you've really got to be quite thoughtful about what you can project and who's going to win what and who's going to win layer one reality, who's going to win layer two reality, who's going to win, you know, augmented reality. Och han tillägger att det inte bara valutor som kommer förändras utan även hur vi ser på ägande. My generation which is the post 80s generation is probably the first generation that really cares about non-physical things. Like for me I care as much about many of my digital goods and my digital identity as I do my physical stuff. I would say younger generations actually care more about their digital identity, right? So the fundamental degree of importance that people place on real things versus fake things All of these things show that it's going to be very difficult for companies like Facebook to be as big of a winner in the next generation as they were in the last generation. I wouldn't bet on Facebook dominating or squashing very much. Tack till vår gäst och stort tack till dig som lyssnar. Alexander Wong har generöst bidragit med faktakoll till det här avsnittet. Vi vill påminna alla som lyssnar att den digitala draken inte ska ses som underlag för investeringar och placering av kapital utan har som syfte att utbilda och bredda perspektiv. Vi kommer garanterat återvända till det här ämnet i flera avsnitt. Vi hörs snart igen. Du har lyssnat på Den digitala draken, en podd från Svenska Dagbladet. Ansvarig utgivare är jag, Anna Kareborg.